The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not that I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to introduce introduce Jeff Miller, who's our church planning resident here, um, as he preached to Sacred City Church for the first time. Today, I have another uh, great honor to introduce Eric Olson, who is a member of Sacred City Church, also a deacon. Um, Eric, if you want to come up while I'm talking about you. Eric has been part of our church for about two years or so. I might be off on my number, but right around there. And uh, he's just a great guy to have around. Um, loves Jesus a lot. Um, got a wife, Tony, two kids. One's pretty new, Isaac. Uh, six months? No. How many months? Four. Four months. Pretty close. Uh and so Eric has been part of our preaching lab, which I mentioned a couple weeks ago, where, where we get a bunch of dudes in a room on a Saturday morning once a month, um, and we kind of take turns giving preaching a shot. Um, and so for about two months now, Eric has been working on this sermon. And from the day that he started, it has greatly transformed. And I feel like Eric has, you know, let me say this. So looking back, I've got a very short preaching career um, but every time I look back on my sermons, it's not just sermons, like a, a word on a piece of paper. Um, like those sermons represent a change that I went through, where God actually was doing something in my heart as I prepared to preach a sermon. And I can attest the same thing for Eric, because at the beginning of this, his sermon was a lot of just information about the text, which is good. It's good to know about the text. Um, But over the last two months, I've really seen how God has been pressing this down into his heart um, and really doing a work in him, which I'm excited about. And then also to be able to come up here and to share that with you this morning. So I'm excited to to let Eric preach, uh, and I'll let him get to it. Um, But I just want you to know, this is a guy who's been wrestling with this one text, these 10 verses for two months and God's done a work. And so I want to celebrate that, but I also want to pray for him as he gets to share some of that with us this morning. So, again, would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you 
for the way that you love us and the way you look after us and the way that you, you nourish us through your word. And so this morning, would you come, uh, would you, as we come, would you allow us to feast on what's before us? Would you instruct us? Would you comfort us? Lord God, would you lead us and guide us through your word? And as Eric um, shares some of, some of his own personal stuff, but also as he, he just pre- presents the text in an honest way, Father, would you be in it and of it? Would you, would you be the one who's communicating to your church this morning? Would Eric be small so you could be great? And I pray, Father, I know he's probably got a lot of nerves going on um, and just feeling pretty anxious about this situation, as rightly so. But, Father, I just pray you would calm him this morning. Would you allow him to to speak with clarity? Would your gospel be presented in a very clear and concise way, Father? And in doing so, would, would your spirit be at work changing our hearts as you have been at work changing Eric's heart? Father God, as we leave here today, would, would we leave as changed people, people who have been uh, come in, into contact, encountered the gospel, encountered the grace and the love of our Heavenly Father, and go out of here as missionaries today? And, and, and so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. How's everyone doing? All right. Uh, so Sam took part of my introduction about the kids and the wife, so that's, ex- that's excellent. Uh, I'll give you other, three other facts that are going to separate me from some of the other people that have preached from this pulpit. Number one, I've never been inside of a CrossFit box in my life, <laughs> right? N- number two, I... I have never owned an Apple product in my life, right? Still on old paper here, right? And number three, and possibly most important, I've never read any of the Lord of the Rings books or seen any of the movies, right? No gospel of Gandalf today. All right. So if you are new, if this is your first time joining us, just let you know, we, we teach expositionally. What that means is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we didn't just choose this text like, this is a good baptism text, right? Um, And for the last 13 months, we've been going through the book of Mark, uh, trying to answer the question, who is the real Jesus? What is it about his life that has made him arguably one of the central figures in all of human history? And if you're anything like me throughout this eyewitness account, you've been absolutely struck by not only the power and authority of Jesus, but also the uniqueness of him, right? He's not like every other man that's walked the earth. We've seen miraculous things both centering on Jesus and work through him. We saw at the baptism of Jesus, the sky part and the audible voice of God speak down saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All right, I'm very thankful. Like, I love Finn, but I'm thankful that didn't happen. That would undercut a lot of this message. (laughs) Right, we also saw at the transfiguration, a similar scene where Jesus actually himself split open and the glory of God shone forth. And again, the voice from heaven speaks down, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We've not only seen the things center around him as being miraculous, but we've also seen powerful works of his hands. We saw him heal the sick, restore sight to the blind, cleanse the leper. We've seen him multiply a few fish and loaves and feed a multitude of people. He's walked on water and he silenced storms with just the mere command of his voice. He stood toe-to-toe with demons, took on the religious elite, And in all of this, he's been completely unmovable. There's been nothing that has shaken him, nothing that has stirred his soul. 
But in today's text, we encounter a different Jesus. The Garden of Gethsemane account is a very widely known account in all of history, in all of scripture. But I believe a lot of times we read over it without really giving it a lot of examination or thought. And I believe that this is a vignette of Jesus that we can really only see here in this garden. And it's a picture we really need to, say, need to see. So the question is why? Like, what is it in this text from 2,000 years ago that can apply to me, that I can take from this today? Well, first, I believe this is, that this text is going to give us insight into the temptations we all face and how Jesus overcame where we often fail. Second, I believe we're going to see that our failures to be obedient to God illuminate a deeper issue that's going on inside of each and every one of us. And third, I believe we're going to see that Jesus and his non-negotiable obedience to God, especially here in this garden, unlocks one of, one of the answers to the deepest longings of the human soul. So if you would, uh, open your Bibles. We'll be in Mark chapter, chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles scattered in the aisles, uh, or you can pull up your Android phone, or whatever knockoff you have. And uh, we'll be starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago, Jeff got up and he talked about how Jesus flipped the script of a 1,500-year-old script of the Passover at the institution of the Lord's Supper. And last week, Sam told us about Jesus foretelling of his disciples' failure to stick close to him when he's arrested. And now Jesus has brought the disciples down to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane was a typical place where Jesus would go for solitude and to be strengthened before the Father. And now the night before the very purpose of why he came to us is upon him, he again seeks to be strengthened by the Father. And we see Jesus leaves the bulk of the disciples at the gate of the garden and takes with him three specific guys, Peter, James, and John. Now, if you've been tracking with us, you know that these three disciples were Jesus' closest disciples, but they were also the most self-confident of the group. If you remember, James and John, they asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, when you take over your kingdom, can we sit at the right and left, right, the positions of power? Jesus, Je Jesus said to him, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And upon hearing this, stared directly back at Jesus and confidently said, we can drink it. Or take Peter, who merely an hour or so ago looked at Jesus directly in the face when Jesus says, you will fall away. Trust me, three times you're going to deny me. And he says, not me, right? Even if they all fall away, I will not deny you, even if I must die with you. So while the disciples entered the garden sure of their strength, a different reality was coming over Jesus. The text says that Jesus and the three disciples separate from the group, and Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, this word for uh, distressed in the Greek literally means out of one's senses with the outcome of being amazed to the level of wonder. Something has staggered Jesus. 
something has began to stir his soul. He's seen something, he's heard something, he's felt something, he's realized something that has moved him. And Jesus looks to his closest disciples and he opens up to them. Verse 34, he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, this should have set off all sorts of red flags for the disciples. I mean, think about it. These guys walked with Jesus. They saw him healing people. They saw him restoring the sight to the blind and the death, death being restored their hearing, right? They saw him stand before demons. They saw him uh, raise the dead. They were even on a boat with him that as the waves crashed over and they feared for their lives and they, they tried to wake Jesus to the reality of the sleep, uh, situation as he's sleeping, right? He just stands looks directly into the wind and waves and says, peace, be still, right? Not, not an ounce of fear, not an ounce of anxiety. And now he's before something that has stirred his soul, something that has made him uneasy. So what's the disciples' reaction? Sleep? Are you kidding me? All right. So this isn't the, this isn't the main point of the text, but we got to address it. We see that three times Jesus, in extreme agony, separates from the group to check on his disciples. And three times he, he arrives just to find them sleeping. This is literally the only request that Jesus has of them this evening. Remain here and watch. Now this idea of watch it does not mean passively, passively observe, as many of us will watch the Super Bowl this evening. But it literally means to stay awake, to stay vigilant to be aware of all that's going on. If you remember, it's the same command that Jesus gave the disciples in chapter 13 in relation to, to the end times, right? Remain awake. But it's obvious that this physical sleep the disciples have fallen into this morning or this evening in the garden is just an outworking of a deeper sleep that they had already fallen into, a sleep of their soul, an inability to recognize their weakness and sinfulness. So think about this scene. Jesus knows these guys are going to fail him. He knows that, that they're not going to hold close to him when, he, when he's arrested. And Jesus tells them to stay awake. Now, why does Jesus give them this command, right? Does he expect these guys to follow through? He's aware of their weakness. He already has talked about how they're going to fail him, how they're going to fall. I believe Jesus gives them this command to make it real to them, to put flesh on the bones, to, to show them real time, this is how weak you are. You can't even pray while I'm in the greatest agony. You can't even keep yourself awake and be obedient to that level. Right? So Jesus' main a main purpose here, I believe in this commandment, is to illuminate them to their own souls, to the, to the depths of their depravity, to the depths of their weakness. So let's say an issue of yours is, is uh, fear, of, fear of rejection, right? Or, um, yeah, take fear of rejection. What's, what's the command that God's gonna, going to, what's the command God might give you to illuminate that issue in your soul? Hey, get up in front of a church and preach, right? <laughs> it works, right? Okay. See, for Jesus, 
One of, his, one of the most important things this night is not even his own agony. He wants these disciples to see so badly their need, their inward need to find strength that is outside of themselves, right? Righteousness that is outside of themselves. They are going to fail. And the second thing I think we need to see from this text is really, is really this. Jesus talks about how these guys are going to fail him, right? Several hundred years earlier, he, it was already written in scriptures. It's going to happen. So now picture Jesus as he's walking around choosing these disciples, right? Peter, you're going to fail me, man. Come be my disciple. James and John, you guys are going to be really, really arrogant, and then you're going to fail me when I most need you. Come be my disciple, right? This is what allows us to look into the depths of our souls, to not be afraid of the weakness and, and sin that's inside of us, right? He knows the bag of goods he's buying. He knows our weakness better than we do. He knows our sinfulness better than we do. But this doesn't clear up the difficulty we see in Jesus, does it? See, he's foretold many times of how he will die for the, for the sins of the world. He knows this. So why now does he seem to be perplexed, like he's, like he's, like he's, uh, like he's facing the reality for the first time? Why does he seem to be crumbling at the arrival of his death when so many who came after him, also bearing his name, also facing very brutal and painful deaths, seem to do so with much more peace and confidence, right? We can think of Peter, the one who's going to betray him here. History tells us that, and many ancient sources say that at the point of his crucifixion, as he's about to be crucified himself, he looks at his captors and says, nah, put me upside down. Right? I don't, I don't want to be crucified in the same manner as my Savior. Or we think of Polycarp, who was a disciple under John, who, upon being arrested, tied to a stake, put kindling underneath him, and as they stand around him with torches, say, either renounce Christ and pledge your allegiance to Caesar, or we will set you on fire. And Polycarp says this, Eighty and six years I have served Christ nor has he done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched, but you know not of the fire of the judgment to come, the fire of eternal punishment. Bring what you will. So what's shaking the unshakable man at this hour? Right? Let's take a close look at Jesus' prayer and see what he petitions the Father for. Verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. The only logical conclusion is that the cup that Jesus faces is much beyond what any of them would have to endure. See, Jesus isn't shaken by the desertion of the disciples. He's not moved by the, the, the scourging and the beatings. He's not moved by the mockery. It's not even the pain of the death and crucifixion that has got him troubled. The cup that Jesus refers to this, this, e this evening here in the garden is nothing short of the wrath of God against human sin. It's nothing short of the ultimate experience of suffering to become sin on the behalf of man and face God's righteous and just punishment. The cup has strong ties to the Old Testament imagery. 
We read in Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Or Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, on, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. See, the cup that Jesus is before, that he speaks of, that he asked to be released from, is nothing but the concentrated, full swirling cup of God's righteous anger towards all the sins that have been committed against his name. See, now I get it. We live in a culture where we don't like to talk about the wrath of God, right? None of your friends called you this week like, hey man, I got a couple hours, you want to get together, talk about the wrath of God, right? That didn't happen. We don't like to talk about a God of wrath because we equate it with a very unpleasant God, right? But the problem is, is that you cannot have a God of love without also having a God of wrath. It, they're two sides of the same coin, right? See, let me explain it this way. I love my wife and kids. And if someone comes to harm them, you're not going to see a loving reaction towards that person. What are you going to see? You're going to see wrath. You're going to see anger. You're going to see, I'm going to move, right? It, and actually, the more love we have for something, the more anger it produces in, produces in us when that thing is violated. So the question is, what is God love that has been violated? It's his name. It's his glory. It's the very purpose we were created and stamped with the image of God, to glorify him, to lift him up, to make him the center of everything and proclaim to the world how good he is. Problem is, is we live in a Genesis 3 world, a world that doesn't love what God loves, that doesn't seek to lift his name up, where the name of God is more likely to be used as a curse word than lifted up. To understand what is taking place in this garden, we need to look at a different garden. A garden where the story of God first begins. The Garden of Eden. We read in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created the world and everything in it and called it good. And in this world, he, he had a garden where he cr then created Adam and Eve, humanity, and placed them in the garden and gave them everything they could ever want. He gave them comfort. He gave them provision. He gave them security. He gave them relationship. Everything they could ever need was in the garden. And he placed in this garden one tree, a tree, well, a couple trees, but one that matters to us this morning, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And he says, of this tree, you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it, you will surely die, right? That, do not touch this one tree, but what do we see happen? A serpent enters in and entices their hearts. It says, you know, that tree is just what God's trying to keep from you. God is, in fact, not good. He's not good as he tells you. There are things that he's trying to hold back from you. In order to experience the, the satisfaction of life in its full, you must disobey God's commandment about the tree. So what happens? They do. They taste of its fruit, and all of the world is fractured. Sin has now entered inside of themselves. It is now a part of them. This is the story of humanity, isn't it? It's the story of us, 
right? How often are we enticed into believing that God is in fact not good, that through his commandments, he's actually trying to keep things from us rather than give us the best life possible. In Hebrews 4.15, we are told that Jesus is tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. Jesus never offends the name of God in temptation, never seeks goodness outside of God. We see at the beginning of Mark, Jesus go into the, into the desert and face temptation. Satan stands before him after he's fasted for 40 days and tries to entice his heart, setting all the lusts of the world before him. And we see in the other gospel accounts that he seems to be unmoved by these temptations, right? He, he approaches them with a, a crazy amount of clarity and conviction. You have nothing for me. But now in this moment, Jesus is feeling the full force of temptation, much beyond that was, which was in the desert. Our world's view of dealing with temptation is much like Oscar Wilde's in the uh, picture of Dorian Gray, who says this, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it, right? It can't be fought. You must give in. You must give in to those desires which try to entice you away. They can't be overcome. But we see Jesus take a much different view. C.S. Lewis, in the book Mere Christianity, says this, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life of always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us, until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows full what temptation means, the only complete realist. See, to be truly tempted in every way we were, yet without sin, it was not enough for Satan to stand in front of Jesus and try to entice his heart. See, Jesus needed to feel temptations that seemed to come from within. Right? That speak to the inner man that says true satisfaction will not be found in obeying the will of God, but by rejecting it. Where we often fail, Jesus succeeded. Jesus didn't give in to the desire and follow his, his will wherever it led, but he took that will back to the Father. He says, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. But it, if, if that's not possible within your will, above all else, your will be done. See, Jesus would not let go of his non-negotiable submission to the Father. Jesus overcame. So the question is, how did he overcome? What was Jesus fighting for that made him able to stand against what he was fighting against? And how can this help us in our fight against sin? See, for Jesus, he held obedience to God as his sole non-negotiable, the only thing he refused to give up. Why? Well, think about your non-negotiables for a second. What is it? I mean, we all have them. What are yours? Is it comfort? Is it worldly success and money? Is it approval? Okay, if, 
Comfort is your non-negotiable. How must you respond when you're called to open your homes to others or do the hard work of crossing your yard and engaging your neighbors? If comfort's your non-negotiable, what does it look like when God tells you to join a missional community and be a part of the messiness? Or dads, after a long day of work and the couch is calling, what happens when, when Jesus tells us to lead your family, to disciple your children? If comfort's your sole non-negotiable, how must you respond? Or maybe it's money. If money and success is your sole non-negotiable, what happens if your job asks you to do something dishonest? And to say no would mean sure dismissal. Or what about investing our finances into the work of the local church? How must you respond if it will actually cost you something, something that you believe is going to bring your uh, ultimate satisfaction to be a part of the greater work of God? Or approval. See, this one, this one became very real to me. During, during the preparation of this sermon, uh, at, at my job, there was a supervisor that came to our shift, and, and he, he was having struggles in his family, right? And being the good, you know, Christian man I am, I'm, I'm in my car on lunch break praying for him. And he comes out of the building, and he gets into the car right next to mine. And I feel the prompting. Knock on his window. Ask him how you can pray for his family. Cool, simple enough. So I get out of my car, take a deep breath, and walk right past him into the building. Right? What had happened in that moment? See, approval, fear of, fear of rejection, fear of uh, all the things that could, could, that could interrupt at my job had become bigger to me than the commands of God. What he was asking me to do in that moment was not ultimate. I didn't believe it would lead to my best life. See, our, uh, our non-negotiables set themselves up in direct opposition to obedience of God. So why would Jesus hold obedience as his sole non-negotiable? The same reason we have ours. Flip real quickly to Hebrews chapter 12. All right, Hebrews chapter 12, start in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus holds non-negotiable obedience to, to God for the very reason we abandon him, for joy. But see, Jesus has, Jesus has always held on to something that we lost, right? We see it in the prayer, Abba, Father, right? This, this idea of connection. Jesus has not just, been a, not just been in relationship with the Father for the 33 years of his life. This has been an eternal relationship. He knows the Father's goodness. He knows that anything God calls him to is for his ultimate good. See, he knows that the commandments of God are not a fence blocking off joy, but guideposts that will lead him to it. 
See, these things, comfort, security, acceptance, value, they're all good things to desire. They're God-given desires. They're, but they're things that he looks to fulfill in himself. See, our battle is the same battle that Adam faced in the Garden of Eden and failed. And the same battle that Jesus now faces in the Garden of Gethsemane, but succeeds. It's a battle for joy, for true joy, a joy that lasts, a joy that proclaims how good God is. So let me ask you, how do you view the commandments of God? Do you like Adam? Believe they are, they, to obey them would mean to abandon joy? Or like Jesus, do you look at them that your best life, the, the j- best joy possible will be found by submitting your will to the Father's? Now I know what you're saying. Sure, I'm not perfect, but nobody is, right? You look around the world uh, full of greed and, and lust and racism and abuse, and you say, man, in a world of candles, I am a spotlight. Okay, well, let's assume that's true. Let, let's, let's assume that's true for a moment. You know when all that conversation goes out the window, where all of it becomes silly? When you're standing on the surface of the sun, right? When you're examined beneath a pure light source. Jesus is the perfect source that eliminates all boasting. Even in his difficulty here in the garden, he's more concerned about the disciples than he is his own, his own soul. Jesus shows us the standard. It's perfection. See, every person here has offended the name of God. Therefore, every person here is deservant of wrath. There's only one who hasn't offended the name of God. So listen, it's important this morning that we see the Jesus who prays. And it's important that we see the Jesus who obeys. But the most important thing we see this morning is the Jesus who trades. Look into this garden with me. Peer beneath the gnarled olive branches upon this scene. Right? Jesus, perplexed of soul, crying out for mercy before the Father. And the disciples, restfully asleep. If there's anyone that should have been freaking out the night before the wrath of God was to be poured out, surely it's the disciples the ones who continue to fail, the ones who continue to fall short. And if there's anyone who should have been resting, it's Jesus. But here, we see Jesus standing in the place of sinners, crying out to God for mercy, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So this is the reality of our condition this morning. Every person here has a cup that must be dealt with. Every one of us have offended the name of God and have filled a cup of wrath that is due to us. And we are given two options. Either we will stand righteously before, justly before that cup when we stand before a holy and righteous God or we trust in Jesus and his trading places with us. And in doing so, have our cup added to the cup that he stood before this morning. The cup that he would drink empty the next day on the cross. See, for those of you who haven't placed your faith in Christ this morning, I beg of you, please be reconciled to God. 
Do not stand before this fate on your own, trusting in your own goodness. Believe God when he says that will not go well for you. Instead, place your faith in Jesus, in his obedience for your disobedience, for his substitution and his taking your cup on on your behalf and his resurrection as God's acceptance of the exchange. And to those of you who have, who have placed your hope in Christ this morning, as we step down here to take the Lord's table, this is not a moment of sadness. This is a moment of worship. This is a promise that Jesus has drank our cup. Our cup is now dry. We will not ever have to taste the wrath of God that we have earned, that we have, we have filled a cup, but we will not stand before it. Jesus stood before it. And in, and in standing before it and taking it into himself, he had his body split and, and his blood poured out and he has now filled a different cup for us. A cup of righteousness, a cup of grace, a cup of family, and a cup of joy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we oftentimes don't like to look into the depths of our soul to see the wickedness that resides there. We ask this morning that you would illuminate to us the true reality of our hearts, that we don't hold you at the center of the, of the universe, that we don't look to you as our supreme joy. But let us also see Jesus, who stood in our place, who stood before that cup and agreed to take it on our behalf. He signed the dotted line. Father, I ask that you do work in hearts this morning. And, and as you illuminate the sinfulness, you also show your grace. And we ask that you do this all in the precious name of Jesus. And you do it for your glory and for our joy. Amen.